I'm Lee Rowland from the ACLU studios in New York City. This is At Liberty, the podcast where we discuss today's most pressing civil rights and civil liberties topics. Today, the ACLU opposes Kavanaugh. It's hard to overstate the degree to which Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination and the sexual misconduct allegations against him have gripped the nation over the past week. In a dramatic hearing on Thursday, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee that Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her in high school. Kavanaugh denied her claims in a combative and emotional response. Prompted by Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, the FBI opened a limited one-week investigation into Kavanaugh's conduct. Meanwhile, some groups that hadn't previously opposed Kavanaugh have changed course as a result of the allegations. The American Bar Association, for example, has called for further investigation after previously rating Kavanaugh well-qualified. Another such group is the American Civil Liberties Union. The organization does not ordinarily oppose or support judicial nominations. However, over the weekend, the ACLU's national board voted to suspend that policy in order to formally oppose the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here to discuss it all is the head of that board, ACLU president and Brooklyn Law School professor Susan Herman. Susan, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Lee. Good morning. Good morning. Well, this is really an extraordinary historical moment for the country. Could you walk us through where the ACLU is and has been on all things Kavanaugh? Well, I think I'd like to start with where the ACLU has been and is on all things nonpartisan, because you know, we define ourselves as a nonpartisan organization, which means that we do not support or oppose candidates for elective office. For most of our history, that has included people for appointed office, including the Supreme Court. For about 20 years, starting with 1987 and uh, Robert Bork, we had had a policy that made an exception for Supreme Court justices, but then we actually decided to eliminate that exception and that policy in 2006. So in terms of Judge Kavanaugh, our current policy has been that we do not support or oppose nominees for the Supreme Court any more than any other candidates for either elective or appointive office. So what happened was that at the board meeting on September 22nd, we had a discussion about what was going on with Kavanaugh, and we knew that there was a hearing set for uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. And the board agreed to have a special meeting on Friday evening, as you said, to discuss whether or not there was any ground here for an exception. And what the board did decide to do was to make an exception to our policy of not supporting or opposing Supreme Court candidates not on the basis of ideology, because that's something that we had just decided long ago not to do, but because of the very credible allegations of sexual misconduct, because of the failure of having a fair and full investigation of the allegations and the subsequent allegations as well. And that combined with Judge Kavanaugh's own testimony at the hearing led us to believe that there were just really serious doubts as to Judge Kavanaugh's fitness to serve on the Supreme Court. So you have long ago made a decision as ACLU not to oppose on reasons of ideology. Um, can you unpack that for us? Okay. As I was saying, for most of our history, we have neither supported nor opposed any candidates for any elected or appointed office. And with elective office, you know, that's you know, clear that you were not 
partisan. We do not either support or oppose Republicans or Democrats. Sure. And I think some of that to me is also because the ACLU is a multi-issue organization. And there are a lot of people who are very good on some of our issues and not on others. So to take one example of an elected official, Barack Obama was with us on quite a number of our issues, but we were very much in disagreement with him on some issues, like, for example, his massive surveillance policies and the use of drones you know, to do targeted killings. Right. So you know, in our view, we don't try to rate candidates to see if they're perfect, because you know, almost everybody has some civil liberties issues where they agree with us. And I believe that we've sued every president since we were founded in 1920, because there's always some place where we think they get it wrong. Right. It's so, hard to, hard yeah, to please the of, ACLU across the board. It is very hard to please us. And we, we pride ourselves in not being political and deciding who to oppose and who not to oppose. Now, with respect to Supreme Court justices, I could say the same thing. Justice Kennedy, who just retired, was a wonderful uh, supporter of some issues that we very much believe in, especially in the Obergefell case, where he was you know, writing the opinion that gave us same-sex marriage. Right. But on the other hand, in all five of the cases that we've had before the Supreme Court last year, Justice Kennedy voted against us. So what we had decided in you know, our initial decision and what we went back to in 2006 was that we're not about individual people, we're about policies. So what we do when there is a Supreme Court nominee is we, uh, our staff puts together a record that talks about the candidate's civil liberties decisions so that people can talk about the issues in connection with a judge or justice's appointment as opposed to the personality or, or the, the general ideology. Of, of a person. So just to give you an example, um, while the uh, different policy was in effect for about 20 years, the ACLU did oppose Robert Bork and did oppose Samuel Alito and had already opposed William Rehnquist, but that's it. So since the policy was suspended, for example, in the last um, confirmation that came up uh, of Justice Neil Gorsuch, we didn't take a position either supporting or opposing his appointment. And are those the only three, as far as you're aware, the only three judges, Bork, Rehnquist, and Alito, uh, that the organization has previously formally opposed before Kavanaugh? That's right. There were only three before now, and we're now at four, now that we have decided to oppose the confirmation of uh, Judge Kavanaugh based on the current record. Are you able to tell us why the board reverted back to its policy of, of neither opposing um, nor supporting candidates after what I assume is Alito in 2006? I think the reason that we reverted back was that we looked at our record over that 20 years and we were very inconsistent. I think part of the concern was about whether we were going to be consistently applying standards. And I think part of the concern was also whether it would appear to be partisan if we were objecting to Republican nominees and not Democratic nominees. And we like to think that we are neutral and, and fair. So where we ended up, as I mentioned before, is that we don't predict how we think a Supreme Court justice would vote. And we always hope to be pleasantly surprised. You know, Chief Justice Roberts has voted in unexpected ways in a few cases. There have certainly been examples before when justices have surprised the presidents who nominated them. Uh, that was certainly the case with Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy and David Souter when they voted not to overrule Roe v. Wade. So instead of predicting that we're not going to like the way somebody rules, we just decided to get out of that business. And I have to say, I don't regard what we just did Friday night as reverting to the previous policy. I regard this as an exception because it's something that really we hadn't thought about before. If we are concerned about a candidate, not on the basis of how we expect they're going to vote, 
Yeah, that wasn't what our discussion about Kavanaugh was about, how, how we think he's going to vote. It was based on the fact that there are credible allegations of sexual misconduct, uh, that there was an inadequate investigation, and that Judge Kavanaugh's testimony at the hearing really gave many um, suggestions of partisanship and you know, perhaps dissembling. Tell us more about that testimony. What stood out for the board as really calling for this kind of exception? Well, I think what calls for the exception, and again, this was on top of the main thing that the board was concerned about with the credible testimony of, of sexual misconduct. Right. Board members took very seriously the idea that Dr. Ford's testimony does not need corroboration, that the testimony of a woman about a sexual assault is sufficient evidence. And so I think we started from the idea that this is not a criminal trial where you want to oppose a presumption of innocence and the proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard. You have to be very sure that, in fact, um, Judge Kavanaugh did such things in order to convict him of a crime. But this is not a criminal trial. This is a job interview. And so the board felt that the burden should be on Judge Kavanaugh to show that he is, in fact, fit once we've heard uh, Dr. Ford's very credible testimony. So that was where we were starting. We were just extremely concerned that there are, at this point, really unrebutted allegations of sexual misconduct. And that was concerning in itself. But in addition to that, a number of board members mentioned the fact that they also were very concerned that Judge Kavanaugh's response did not show a judicial temperament. So, you know, this was sort of an additional factor. You know, one thing that I think we should expect of a judge is that they be unbiased and neutral. And it would be certainly hard to imagine that Judge Kavanaugh, after railing at, at the Democrats that way, would be, in fact, open-minded if he had litigants before him who were Democrats. So you know, that was something that was really added into the just basic questions about his fitness, his judicial temperament. And so I think that it is in no way inconsistent with the idea that we do not try to predict how justices will vote based on their ideology. We don't oppose justices based on their ideology. But we did think that there was something different going on here, that there were basic questions about whether uh, Judge Kavanaugh has the temperament to be on the Supreme Court. And if I could say one more thing in terms of where I think the um, board came from when they made an exception for Supreme Court nominees for that 20-year period, as opposed to anyone else. When you think about it, there is a very active check on almost any other candidate who can be elected or appointed. If we elect somebody who turns out to be unfit for the job, there's another election in which you can vote them out. If somebody is appointed to a position, you can always lobby the person who appointed them to get rid of them. But the Supreme Court justices are in the completely unique position of having life tenure. So the only way you can get rid of a Supreme Court justice who turns out to be biased or unfit is through the extremely high bar of impeachment. So that's what led the board to go back to some of the idea that the Supreme Court is special. Um, The vote on the board ended up being a supermajority vote. We have 69 board members. 62 of them managed to attend the emergency meeting on Friday night. And the vote of the board was 55 to 7 to oppose the nomination of Judge Kavanaugh. That is most certainly overwhelming. So that's why. And there were a lot of people who went in who, as of last Saturday, said, no, we should never make an exception to our policy. But then as the factors started to mount up, not only was Christine Blasey Ford very persuasive, but there were all these other concerns that were raised about, whoa, you know, (laughs) how partisan does that sound? And is this person really going to be fit to be a Supreme Court justice? And then the inadequacy of the investigation, too, it just really added up. Yeah. Wow. 
Do you see any likelihood of the board changing this vote depending on the outcome of the FBI investigation that we're now likely to see over the next week? I think that's a great question. I think, you know, we've left room for that possibility. The board concluded that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony was very credible and that therefore we think there's, a, as the lawyers say, a prima facie case from what we can see right now. There's a pretty good case that, in fact, she was sexually assaulted and that the person who assaulted her was Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, however, we still do believe in due process. And if there were evidence that came out to show that you know, the facts are not as we believe them to be right now, I think the board would be open to reconsider. There are some concerns that board members had that would not necessarily be eliminated by a full and fair FBI investigation showing that we should believe his testimony because of you know, the lack of temperament. I think some board members would have to try to sort out which thing was more important to them. But I think that you know, we leave room for the possibility that if Judge Kavanaugh is vindicated by a full and fair FBI investigation, then you know, we might well talk again and talk about whether or not we think he is a fit justice after all. Let's turn to the issue of temperament. Certainly what struck me most about the hearings was uh, that Judge Kavanaugh came in in a mode that I would liken to snarling um, and began with a very partisan uh, shot across the bow about those hearings being related to a Clintonian conspiracy. The ACLU, as you mentioned, has sued about every American president in history. Did the board discuss the potential negative consequences for a legal organization that practices in front of the court after formally opposing a nominee who may very well end up sitting on that court and who now has made plain an intention to remember those who have stood against him? Well, I can say, Lee, that in 2006, when the board decided to drop making an exception for Supreme Court nominees, that's another explanation that was given that we do very frequently appear before the Supreme Court, and it's very important to us that we are regarded as a, a neutral and you know, fair litigant. I, I can say that both um, Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas have commented over time that they read ACLU briefs and cases because they regard us as an honest broker. I think those were Scalia's words. So I think that's very important to us. And a number of people had said, well, we don't really want to prejudge justices and then appear before them after we've said we don't want you on the Supreme Court. Right. That was one of the arguments in 2006 when the board was just discussing whether or not to make an exception to the policy. And that argument was raised. Well, you know, what if we were to oppose Judge Kavanaugh? Would he then you know, um, bear a grudge and vote against us just because we had opposed him? And there were a lot of board members who sort of questioned how true that is empirically. I don't think we really have a lot of evidence about whether or not a judge would tend to you know, hold a grudge against a particular organization that had opposed him or her. And I think, you know, in some ways it may be plausible to say that maybe a judge would bend over backwards you know, to not show bias against you. So, you know, I think that wasn't an important part of the decision here in terms of concern. But what you're saying about temperament, I think there are two parts to temperament. One part is just, are, are, is somebody explosive? And here I saw recently somebody uh, dug up a quote of what Senator Lindsey Graham said about Sonia Sotomayor went at her confirmation hearing. Mm -hmm. And he said she was so angry, she was so explosive, and she didn't have the temperament to be on the Supreme Court. That's astounding. So I thought it was really pretty interesting that Judge Kavanaugh would be judged by a, a different standard from the standard that at least he applied to Sotomayor. But I think that the ACLU wouldn't necessarily want to go there. So when I say temperament, I don't necessarily mean just that, you know, he has a demeanor 
that sometimes he might yell more. If somebody yells, you know, that not necessarily um, something that would disqualify them from being a judge. It's not good. But what, in my mind, what board members were more concerned about was the part of what we're generally calling part of, quote, temperament, but is really more about partisanship. Can that judge be fair? Uh, Chief Justice Roberts famously said at his confirmation hearings that he's just an umpire and he just calls the balls and strikes. Well, you know, if you had somebody you were thinking of hiring as an umpire before the ball game and they started screaming about you know, how much they um, disliked one of the teams, you, you wouldn't hire them. <laughs> so, you know, the, the possibility of partisanship here, I think, was what was of main concern to some board members. The uh, reason I don't think we're reverting to the business of always uh, deciding whether or not to oppose Supreme Court justices is that this is almost like a perfect storm. You know, we have the credible allegation of sexual misconduct. We have the inadequate investigation where you can't really tell you know, what evidence there is big picture. We have um, the additional allegations which have not been investigated or presented to the committee. And then we have Judge Kavanaugh's own testimony, which I think shows several different things. It does show an explosive temperament. But what worries me more is that there are suggestions that he would be going into the Supreme Court as a partisan. And we have concern about whether there is a bias there that would disable him from doing the job of being fair to all litigants. I want to change subject a little bit as we're winding up. So many commentators have noted the echoes to the Anita Hill hearing during the confirmation, obviously, of Justice Thomas. And I think those echoes are very jarring, particularly in revisiting how Anita Hill herself was treated at the time. Whatever happens with Kavanaugh, do you think we've made progress as a nation in providing women the space and incentive to come forward? And do you think the ACLU's commitment to women's rights, among other issues, at all affected how the board received the credibility of Dr. Ford's testimony and in voting to take the step? Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And I think that in terms of whether we as a country have made progress on listening to women, the Me Too movement, I think, is really so important. And our Women's Rights Project has been trying to you know, design um, its current docket, its current activities, to try to capture the moment that we're in, where all of a sudden it does seem possible that a woman will be listened to, even if she doesn't have you know, corroboration, even if there's not a lot of evidence, of, of you know, objective evidence other than her testimony. So I think the fact that Dr. Ford's testimony was so credible, I think that many members of the board wanted to stand with her and to say this was a very brave and patriotic thing that she did to tell a very intimate details of things that are really clearly traumatic for her and to tell them to the Senate committee just because she felt that it was her civic duty to give information that might be helpful to the Senate. So, you know, I think we did want to make that statement and to disagree with those who say, well, you shouldn't pay any attention to her because you don't have objective corroboration. You, you don't have her calendar saying where this happened and what the address was and what time and what date and, you know, and how she got home. So you know, I think this is our statement that we do believe that women should be believed, you know, that women should be able to tell their stories. Uh, back to the idea of partisanship, one thing that I, I said to the board at the beginning was that I thought that whether or not board members believed Dr. Ford's testimony was an important question that the, everyone was thinking about for themselves, but that that would not in itself be enough for the ACLU to decide to oppose Judge Kavanaugh, that we had to think about our role as fiduciaries and our role as a nonpartisan organization. 
And so what I ask board members to think about is what if Judge Kavanaugh had been a Democratic nominee and somebody who we predicted would be very favorable on civil liberties? Would we reach the same conclusion and opposed his nomination on the basis of these same factors, on the basis of the credible allegation of sexual misconduct, the you know, show of partisanship, even if it had been in the other direction, etc.? And quite a number of board members were very struck by that, and they said that they were quite certain and committed to the idea that this standard should apply in a nonpartisan fashion, and that if there were a Democratic nominee who raised the same doubts as to fitness to serve on the Supreme Court, we like to think, you know, if there were all the same circumstances, that we would take the same position, that this is not about politics, that this is about an individual whom the board concluded has not made the case that he is a fit person to serve on the Supreme Court. Susan, my last question for you is prompted in part by comments we've gotten from some of the listeners to our podcast who say they would love to know more about how the folks we talk to got into the gigs we're talking to them about. So could you just give us a just a quick summary of how exactly one becomes president of the ACLU? When I was elected president, people would ask, well, how did you become a civil libertarian? And the story that I love to tell is when I was in third grade and I first discovered that my public school library had, well, I knew they had a girls section and a boys section in the library. But when I went one day to take out a book, you know, Johnny Tremaine, we were doing the play version of it in third grade. And I wanted to read this book. And I was told by the librarian that I couldn't take it out because it was in the boys section. Wow. And that had never actually occurred to me that I knew they, they were recommending books for girls and boys, but I didn't know I wasn't allowed to read certain things. So I told my mother about this, and she just blew up. And she called the school librarian and insisted that I should be able to read whatever I wanted. And so the librarian you know, let me read whatever I wanted. And in a few months, they changed the policy. Oh, and wow. so I think our values are formed very early. And so I like to say to people that the first civil libertarian I knew was my mother. And this whole idea that you could kind of stand up to authority and to people telling you what you can and can't do, what's good for you, I think really stuck. So then uh, my first involvement with the ACLU was when I was in law school. And as a law student, I was working for someone who was general counsel to the New York Civil Liberties Union, Larry Sager. I worked with him on some research and some litigation and gradually got to see more of what the ACLU did. So after law school, I did not go to work for the ACLU, but I did become first a member of a committee that was working with the board. And then I got elected as a board member. Uh, did that for a number of years, was elected general counsel, which I'm very proud of. That was one of the jobs that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had before me. And then um, I was elected just about 10 years ago to be president. Susan, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the Kavanaugh nomination this morning. Well, thank you, Lee. Thanks for listening to At Liberty. We'd love to hear your feedback. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It also helps new listeners find out about us.